Welcome back to another episode of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokwai, and the voices I am seeking may have never been heard before, but their stories deserve to be told. What is a Desi Woman? She is a dynamic, fearless, and strong woman. She is your mother, your grandmother, your daughter, your sister. She is every one of us who is on an endless pursuit of self-empowerment and fulfillment. I am Sonia Gokhlai, and I am a Desi Woman. Hello, and welcome to another edition of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokhlai. And I want to thank you for tuning in today, whether it's your first time joining us or you've tuned in before, it means so much to me that you found yourself here. And if you like what you hear, please think about dropping us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to access your podcast content. Today, we are so delighted to be joined once again by Ashwani Jain. Ashwani Jain recently ran a groundbreaking and historic campaign as the youngest candidate to ever vie for the role of governor of Maryland. Ashwani is a first-generation American who was born to parents who immigrated to the United States from India and then went on to become successful small business owners in the state of Maryland. Ashwani is a product of the Maryland Public Schools and a graduate of the University of Maryland, and he began volunteering for Barack Obama's presidential campaign as a high school senior. After Obama took office, Ashwani transitioned from being a campaign staffer to an administration official, helping the presidential personnel diversify applications for political appointees to the federal government, and acting as the director of outreach for then-Vice President Joe Biden's Cancer Moonshot Initiative. Today, we welcome Ashwani back to talk to us about lessons learned on the campaign trail and so much more. Ashwani, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me back. Well, we are so very excited to welcome you back. And for those of you who may not be aware, Ashwani Jane is the youngest person to ever run for governor of Maryland. And you were sort of the hashtag millennial um, candidate in, in Maryland. And coming off that phenomenal groundbreaking campaign, really so excited to speak with you and understand your takeaways from from running this campaign and how you really are the embodiment of taking the money out of politics. And so before we dive into some questions and observations, just want to say hello and and your thoughts right now as you've been running at 100 plus miles per hour on the campaign trail nonstop. How does it feel at this point? Um, Do you feel energized? Are you I'm glad for the break, and and I definitely want to hear what's next, but just in general, I want to take a temperature read. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me back, and uh, you know, you've been such a supporter, uh, and you know, just just your kindness has been you know not going unnoticed. Um, so I appreciate the opportunity to always you know uh, talk to your viewers and just have a conversation with you. But no, it's it's been great. You know, I I did run for governor of Maryland. It was a really long and, and tedious campaign. I loved every second of it. I'm super proud of what we were able to accomplish. And even though we didn't win the nomination, we still made history and, you know, really proved what is possible if, you know, you're, even if you're a young person and, you know, you have the right ideas and are able to put in the work. 
And so, yeah, after that, it's been, you know, catching up on sleep, uh, catching up with friends mm-hmm. and family again, developing a new routine. Um, and also, you know, I'm still super busy with my day job as program director for the National Kidney Foundation. And I've also been using the new platform I have uh, with all that we were able to build on my campaign into helping other Democrats, at least in Maryland, win their November general election. So helping the candidate who did win the governor nomination and other candidates up and down the ballot, just to make sure that, you know, the work that me and my volunteers fought for didn't just stop or end with our election. Well, I don't think there's any question about that. I mean, just listening to you and and for listeners who may not have had the pleasure of, of listening to a podcast with Ashwani previously, please do so. And you'll you'll certainly get the idea based on this discussion with him about how charismatic, how energetic, and and really what a problem solver you really are. So I am not surprised at all that you are going to get many reach outs from not only the Democratic establishment, but anyone really around the world that is seeking to break barriers. And I do want to start out just a bit for those listeners who might be joining us for the first time, a little bit about your journey and and your roots, um, not only to where you are right now, but most of the people that I interview on this podcast are either recent immigrants or have immigrant roots, and many happen to be descendants um, from India. And so you also grew up in Maryland with parents who immigrated to this country from India, and they were small business owners. And I think that narrative in and of itself is inspiring, but I don't know that our narratives, our our background um, stories are shared as widely as they could be in mainstream media. So another reason that I wanted to launch this initiative. But I think it pertains to the fact, and you pointed this out during our recent discussions, that our communities have contributed so much to the American economy, society, and culture. And you did not come from a political or well-connected family as it pertains to politics. Your grandfather came to the United States and he even found work as a high school maintenance worker. Your mother then went on to community college and worked in a nursing home where she made the minimum wage. And your father, in spite of being very highly educated in India, struggled to find work here because of the language barrier and then the testing requirements that many immigrants have to face when they come here. And so, again, this is such a fascinating and compelling journey to to where you are now. And I'd, I'd really like to hear more about that from you. And if you saw anything similar on the campaign trail about some of the stories that, that may be similar to yours and certainly other countries of origin, but yeah, anything you can offer on all of that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm really blessed to have a, a great family support structure and a lot of uh, lessons about integrity and values and morals and giving back to your community that I think a lot of uh, children of immigrants uh, learn growing up. But yeah, you know, on the campaign trail also, I mean, not including my volunteers, I myself personally knocked on more than thirty five thousand voter doors across the state of Maryland, and in that process you know, you start to realize that everyone's journey, even though it might be a little different, uh, does share a lot of commonalities, right? People uh, go through a lot of struggles, especially those who are from immigrant communities, people of color, those who live in rural communities that are typically forgotten about. You know, this idea of equality of opportunity, of making sure that, you know, people pay their fair share and you get a, you know, you get an equal chance to make something of yourself. 
but understanding that government and politics, if used and done correctly, can be a source of inspiration and can be a partner to help elevate the issues that are concerning your life. But it's just how do we change the system itself so that those voices are elevated and not just big money influence or you know the typical people who always have power um, to actually change the system? Well, I think that is what's real notable about you and this campaign is that most of our communities, look, we, we just got here, relatively speaking. And so we are not well connected as it pertains to certain last names in this country just simply stand out and they have a legacy in politics, sometimes for many generations. And not only did you enter the scene not having any of that, but also you were very, very um, steadfast in wanting to ensure that young people, even as young as middle schoolers, had a seat at the table and even helped you form campaign policy. And so I have to imagine that as you're fielding reach outs from a variety of campaigns or the Democratic Party, that how you were a catalyst for getting that population involved has to be a talking point and something that they're very interested in. And I want to understand why that was so important to you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to understand that how people run their campaigns matter because it does dictate how they would govern if elected. And so that's why I decided instead of just empty talking points to actually do something that's never been done before and empower residents and volunteers and young people and people of color in a way that uh, maybe they haven't felt before. And so, for example, whereas other campaigns would hire staff and consultants to write policy, to manage the databases, write speeches, create graphics, host events, our campaign decided to essentially outsource all these responsibilities to volunteers. And many of our volunteers, ranging, you know, ranging from 11 years old to 92 years old, they were never provided these opportunities before but they did have an interest in learning these skills. And so I knew that if I train them well, and if I empower them to take ownership of these tasks without you know, any time or financial commitment, then not only would I be able to run a good campaign, but I would also be able to expand the bench of future campaigners and other candidates. Because at the end of the day, whether you care about politics or not, uh, decisions about your life are being made by people. And so might as well make your voice heard and ensure that no voice is getting left behind. Yeah. And I think to me, this is the definition of democracy, but I think what you've done is pull the curtain back from what um, I think is largely a a political scene and um, a process that is not attainable for most. And so you brought 11-year-olds to 92-year-olds. It's unprecedented. I mean, but it's actually, it's beautiful. It's actually the way that this country should be operating. And I think most Americans, most voters, and even those um, amongst our global audience would be surprised to learn how elitist what's supposed to be one of the greatest democracies in the world really is as it relates to campaigns. And you really did change the way that campaigns are run by by having young people get engaged versus expensive consultants. And what I also want to hear about is what your thoughts were as you come away from understanding the insidious connection. I say insidious because I know you're going to elaborate on it further, but the obstacles that 
somebody might face, such as yourself, trying to get on the ballot if they don't have a lot of money, don't have a lot of fundraisers, and choose to approach their campaign in the way that you did. I recently spoke with Asmi Shaith, and she was very, very candid about the tangible obstacles that are put in front of anybody trying to get on the ballot just a host of things that I was unaware of. And yet we're supposed to be in a democracy here. And so if you could just sort of, and I'm going to get into some specific questions, but what obstacles would one face, did you face just to simply get on the ballot? Uh, A lot. I mean, you know, typically to run a campaign, they say you need a lot of connections. You need to have a lot of money. You need to have a lot of endorsements from, you know, the typical establishment uh, figures. And that does turn off a lot of young people, a lot of people of color from getting involved in politics, from running for office, because we are told by a system that we do not matter, that we don't have the right experience or enough experience. So we should sit down and wait our turn in line. So, so that's naturally a struggle and a barrier. But uh, here are some of the things that I found uh, and the, the reason why I was able to make it on the ballot without hosting a single fundraiser and without taking a penny from developers, businesses, packs, or polluters, is because, number one, I understood that regardless of where you live, most voters want a candidate who respects them, who has similar lived experiences, who speaks about issues in a comprehensive way, and are able to give them a real voice and seat at the table. And so if you understand that, and if you're willing to do the work, then there's nothing else that can stop you really from making your voice heard and taking that, taking that jump. You know, you have to find something you're passionate about, figure out what you want to do, not what you want to be, and then go for it. You know, yes, do your homework, know your value, carry yourself with kindness, but don't let anyone tell you no, and not even yourself. You know, I think a lot of times, especially for, for young people, you know, progress gets halted because of the mental shackles that we place on ourselves, right? Through fears and anxieties. Uh, But what I've learned personally is if you keep pushing, you'd be surprised at how much you can actually accomplish and also how fulfilling that journey itself will be. So yeah, so hopefully that's, you know, that's some, uh, some helpful lessons and tips, but at the end of the day, you gotta, you gotta find out what is the purpose of, of your work. And if you feel like running for office or getting involved in politics can help solve some of those challenges and barriers, then then go for it. Yeah. And some of the things that you stood for and, and were candid about when we last spoke is saying, how do we actually get money out of politics once the election is over? And so you were emphatic in stating, look, you cannot own a business while you're in office. You should not be able to own and trade stocks and for obvious reasons. And yet I do want you to uh, sort of speak to some of that. Make sure that you have a lobbying ban for elected officials. But even before that, not waiting until the election to get money out of politics and and your campaign was really the embodiment of that. You did not charge residents to have a one-on-one with you. And I want to hear how that is the norm, which it might surprise a lot of people, but you're trying to get close to a gubernatorial candidate. It's going to cost you. That is news to me. And it shouldn't be that way. And and yet you're right, 2000 4000 bucks and up just for a one-to-one, even for 10 minutes. 
And I want to know if you think change is on the horizon. I mean, you've been very vocal about it, but kind of offered a lot right there. But, you know, if you, if I could get your comments on that. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's no secret that money pollutes and corrupts our political systems, right? And I mean, just think about it. If you, uh, as a voter, as a resident, wanted to have an, a conversation with your governor, with your congress member, or even candidates, do you really feel you can easily do so unless you donate a lot of money or you know have the right connections? Most people would say, no, it is impossible for me to do that. And even then, I would only get maybe one or two minutes with that candidate, with that elected official, uh, but they're not actually going to take my ideas seriously. So that's a problem. And so that's what we proved on our campaign is, no, it doesn't need to be that way all the time. And so we proved that you can run a successful statewide operation and campaign without a lot of money, without hosting fundraisers. And now, you know, I'm trying to figure out how do I share this blueprint and share this framework with people all around this country so that other folks can run for office in this kind of manner where you empower residents, you empower volunteers, you go outside of the the same old networks of political establishment. Um, and you know, you just keep pushing forward on policies, on issues, and on ways that you can run these things without, you know, the same way of doing uh, of running campaigns. So it's still a long journey, it's still a long process ahead of it. But we did show that you can make some inroads. And then in terms of you know what happens after you are elected, I mean, yeah, you you mentioned it, but I was really mindful and clear on how do we impose anti-corruption measures with elected officials. So that means, you know, banning, uh, in, in my case, I would have banned the governor, lieutenant governor, and any of agency heads owning a business from personally owning stocks while in office to impose a lobbying ban for once you leave office. You know, and just again, make sure that these positions are about the policies and about the residents, not about the power and the money and the influence that you can have once you leave office. Well, I have... A lot of listeners that are actually outside of the United States. And so I did want to ask you if you could sort of define for us how corporate America has a role and lobbyists have a role in in politics and how that is connected in a lot of ways to um, not only elected officials, but candidates that are running and, and how it would be very difficult to... Um, make decisions as a legislator without being swayed by by some of this uh, monetary influence. Because I think for for lay people and even myself, before I started doing this series, I, I really was not aware. Uh, maybe in a tertiary level, but I didn't understand how um, billionaires, multimillionaires, corporations really have uh, undue influence on on a lot of the issues that we're as Americans grappling with. I mean, they do. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, common sense policies that you think should have been passed or enforced, and yet they're not, that should show you that, yeah, money and special interests still have a big hold on our politics. As an example, majority of Americans, uh, Democrat and Republican, agree that we need, uh, for example, background checks when it comes to owning guns, right, and purchasing guns. And yet, you know, Congress continues to not pass a universal background check law. Why is that? Okay, well, it's because you got these special interests that are telling these members of Congress, if you vote in support of what majority of your constituents want, then we are not going to help 
fundraise for you and we're going to make sure that you lose your next election. You know, when you talk about, you know, even abortion care, right? And reproductive justice. The fact that majority of people in this country understand that abortion care is health care and that you need to make sure that, uh, you know, women and, and other folks who need abortion are able to get so uh, in a safe way. And yet you have a Supreme Court and, you know, different uh, members of Congress that are supporting restricting these kinds of rights to those who really, really desperately need these services. That again shows you that a lot of times politics is not just based on what the residents and what the real people want, but instead is colluded and corrupted by those with a lot of influence and a lot of money. And that's where we need to change the process. It starts with uh, having younger people and diverse people and those from marginalized communities who have lived these experiences to make their voice heard, to volunteer and work on other campaigns, and to even run for office themselves across this country in any position, because we understand that you need to change the way politics operates if you're ever going to make meaningful progress. Oh, that's so spot on because, you know, like I said, I've, I've interviewed several, several political candidates and most recently somebody who considers you a good friend and that's Ashmi Shaith. And she kind of was aligned in what you stated that Americans are tired of pithy talking points and, and politics as usual. And yet the system prevents folks like yourself with new ideas, fresh ideas, a different take on things from even being able to get on a ballot. And um, look, I try to stay middle of the road and, and not take a side here, but I'm pulling this directly um, from Bernie Sanders' website, and, and he indicates that corporate donors spend tremendous amounts of money on inaugural events. And this is very interesting. In 2016, Trump's inaugural donors included companies like AT&T, Bank of America, Boeing, ExxonMobil, General Motors, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and many more. Now, this is newsworthy because you have to ask, why? Why? What? What's their angle? And it's it's certainly not just because they like Trump. There's an angle there. Now, this is news to me as well. Private prisons also shelled out hundreds of thousands of dollars for his inauguration. And we didn't even get to corporate donors who in the 2013 inauguration included companies like Microsoft, Boeing, Chevron, Genentech. And so you have to ask yourself, why? And and what's the expectation there? And just want to see if you have any comments on that. Then I have a follow-up question. I mean, that's exactly it. Uh, you know, it, uh, when people donate a lot of money, people, organizations, when they donate a lot of money to candidates, to politicians, it is not just because they're nice people. It is because they want something, whether it's a specific policy or they just want to make sure that that candidate, that elected official does what they want. And usually if, if you're a big donor, if you're a corporation, it's not always the case that what you want is true and uh, representative of what majority of residents and voters want. But if you're a candidate, you're getting a $6,000 check from a business or an organization, or you're getting a super PAC that is donating hundreds of thousands of dollars to your campaign, then naturally you, they tend to take that more seriously than a voter who doesn't have a lot of money to donate uh, but is actually living these issues in their day-to-day -day life and needs real support and real progress. That's why we need to stop this influence of big money. We need to you know, 
put in actual tangible measures so that candidates cannot just keep getting these kinds of funds. They cannot get money without disclosing it and that these businesses and corporations cannot continue to corrupt our political system. That's how we start to make progress. Yeah. And, you know, I think we're, I I can't believe we're sort of approaching the end of our time together here, but I I really do intend, in case you can't tell, I'm a huge fan and I I hope you will come back again because such an insightful conversation and would actually like to do just a tutorial for for listeners about politics in general, because it's a maze. It, it, It really, you could get a PhD in this stuff and yet you have one experientially. And I did want to ask you about abortion and obviously a hot topic issue whereby um, something has occurred which we really never thought would happen, and that's the reversal of Roe v. Wade. And I have spoken recently, and I'm having her on again, um, a Pakistani-American, Malia Aziz, with the Texas Equal Access Fund. And look, I'm a Hindu-American, not necessarily a devout practicing Hindu, but that was my upbringing, and obviously my parents hail from India. And we both sort of surmised on the, on the concept that look, there's a lot of us that don't come from this Judeo-Christian background. And so legislation and and laws that are enacted that are based upon on those principles and religious ideals really aren't necessarily aligned with Americans anymore and, and the majority of Americans. And I want to see what your thoughts are on that and, and also throughout the campaign process. You're obviously a very diverse candidate. Not many of you that are running or many people of color in general. And I want to get your perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the one thing that I, that I always told folks, uh, especially when it comes to, for example, reproductive justice, abortion care, um, is that no one's religion mine included, should dictate or impact policy if it's harming the public safety of a majority of residents, right? As a tangent example, my religion, so I'm a Jain, practicing Jain, which is kind of like a sect and part of Hinduism, believes in uh, in not eating meat, in being vegetarian. That's my religion. That's my personal belief is that eating meat is wrong. But it is not my job. It is not my right to impose that on the community, on others, if I were in elected office, because that's not harming public safety, right? That personal freedom is not impacting public safety. So in that sense, my religion, my beliefs do not really matter when it comes to public policy. And that's what I say about, uh, about abortion care. If you're Christian, if you're Catholic, if you believe that abortion is wrong, okay, then fine, don't get an abortion. But it is not your right to then dictate what other people can and cannot do with their bodies because that is not impacting your life and it is a healthcare issue. And for many people who get abortions, whether they want to or not, uh, oftentimes it is a decision that's made just between them and their doctor. Uh, sometimes it is life-threatening and it does impact only that individual. So, so that's what I say is, you know, yes, understand the ultimate values of everyone's religion and respect everyone's ideas, but when it comes to policy, when it comes to politics, uh, unless your personal freedoms are impacting public safety, uh, you have no right to really say much. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, I want to follow up um, as we close out here with the question for you. I have to imagine that a lot of the volunteers and folks, younger people that were involved in your campaign, and actually this goes across all age groups in this country, 
are really getting frustrated with um, politics and its current state. And I'm sure they were disappointed. They wanted you to make the nomination and you really inspired so many people. So what do you say to them? Those who say, man, Ashwani, you know, you should be there. We, we want you there. And yet the system isn't quite ready yet. These are, these are bold new ideas. They shouldn't be. They're common sense. But I know that you're a big believer in this democracy. And I know that, look, unless you participate, then you don't have a seat at the table. So what, what would you say to people who, yeah, maybe even bordering on apathetic, why is it so important to stay engaged and devote? I mean, yeah, number one, it is tough, right? It Sometimes it sucks where uh, you have good people, good ideas, and for whatever reason, the system doesn't allow those voices to shine and, and those movements to carry forward. You know, oftentimes we hear in every election that we need to change the status quo. You know, how many times do you turn on the news and hear candidates talk about the importance of getting young people involved, about how my generation will be held accountable for these issues in the future? And yet still many of us are rarely given an opportunity to help with policy and strategy decisions and are instead told we are too young, too ambitious and need to wait our turn. So it's frustrating. But at the same time, disengaging from the process is not going to help anyone. It's not going to help the issues that you care about and that are impacting our communities. And like I said earlier, whether you care about politics or not, Decisions about your life are being made one way or the other. So the very least you can do is continue to stay positive, continue to stay engaged, make your voice heard, and try to push the needle forward. Yes, it might be one step forward and two steps back, but it's about how do we make that one step forward count and really have a lasting impact. And that's what I'm committed to do, even though, yes, it sucks to lose an election, but I know that our campaign, my campaign, was not just about one election it was really about changing the process for generations to come. And, and that's what I'm, I'm committed to continue doing. Well, make no mistake, folks. If you're listening, Ashwani Jane, remember that name. <laughs> yes, you made history. I suspect that people are going to look back on this and use it as, as a guidebook. And, and that's exactly what people are doing, reaching out to you to understand how you did this and how you can help them as well. And so we just cannot thank you enough for joining us today, Ashwani Jane. Really, really inspiring. And, and, and as you can tell from listening to him, so charismatic. And like I said, you're, you're a name that will continue to resonate, I know, in um, U.S. politics for decades to come. I have no doubt about it. And so we cannot wait. Please promise us you will be back again. Absolutely. Uh, Always. And and I appreciate it so much. And I look forward to carrying uh, and continuing the conversations. Thank you, Ashani. Really appreciate it.